Hello and welcome to Help for Mothers, the podcast that helps mothers with health, education, love, and protection. This is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm joined by my co-host, Isha Chiappinelli. Hi, Augustine. And we love to have lots of guests, lots of discussions. We go in-depth on many subjects. And recently, we have started asking some of the deeper questions. Keisha, what kind of questions do you want to know from our guests? What are we talking about these days? Well, we talk about social issues, health issues, issues related to motherhood that are relevant today in 2020 and going forward, how we can institute some sort of change where needed. Lots of questions on this topic. And we have really intriguing and enlightening discussions with our guests to try to really unpack the issues that mothers are facing today. Yeah, I love it. And if you've been listening to them, you know that we come from some some interesting and collaboratory backgrounds. I'm a maternal child health investigator and a midwife, a longtime midwife. And Keisha is not only a lactation consultant, but also a human rights attorney who focuses a lot in preventing and advocating and educating about obstetric violence. So we come from these two perspectives of mamas. We are also both moms, which we don't talk about a lot on here. And I'm a grandma now. (laughs) Congratulations. Well, it's been a few years. I can't believe it. She's turning five this week. I know it just blows my mind. It has been a few years. (laughs) I know. When you can say that your granddaughter is five, I think you can officially call yourself old. (laughs) Well, that that depends. That depends on the culture. It sure does. It sure does. I feel both old and young at the same time. And today I'm really excited to get to welcome a friend of mine. Erica Anderson is joining us today on the podcast. Let's say hello. Hi. Hi. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm really great. Since June is PTSD Awareness Month, we thought it would be a really great time to chat a little more about the traumas that moms face. Because we focus on maternal child health, we're talking about now traumas for kiddos, and we're talking about the history and the reality of trauma for mamas. So it kind of goes both ways. You know, I was just really excited to have you on because of your depth of experience and and wisdom. And so I thought the best place to probably start is just to say, Will you, will you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you came to this work that you do? Sure. I am um, a licensed professional counselor in LPC in Colorado. I originally, in a life before now, I was a preschool director and a preschool owner and a preschool teacher. And I found myself drawn toward always the children who everybody wanted to kick out of the preschool because they were so misbehaved. And what we learned was that those children's behavior had a root. When we got to know the child better and we started to know the parents, usually the mother better, we usually found there was some trauma in the story. And from that, what I did was I, when I left the preschool and went and got my degree, I focused on trauma. And what I did was I, I worked for our local county health and human services department. 
And what I did was I created an early intervention program for children who had social and emotional issues, which basically meant for children who had trauma. And I studied with a world-renowned trauma, early childhood trauma expert, Dr. Bruce Perry, and became certified in his work, which really is focused on the neurodevelopment of children with trauma and what happens to the brain development and what happens socially and emotionally to children when they are exposed to trauma. Part of that work, of course, meant that I worked with parents, particularly with mothers, usually. And if the child was experiencing trauma, typically that meant that the mother was too. And so we learned to work in dyadic pairs with mothers and their children to heal from trauma that had happened to them. It's so much work and it's, it's such profound work because, you know, as, as you're aware, I think all of us are aware that none of this happens in a vacuum, this generational experience in both directions. We influence the children that come after and the generations that come after. And I think oftentimes can, can heal generational trauma upwards as well in, in Mm -hmm. the mother grandmother combo. And so it's, it's quite profound work. In my research around this, in working with mothers, uh, several years ago, we all became pretty aware of the ACEs study. Will you describe that and, and what that influenced your work? So the ACEs study is the Adverse Childhood Experiences study. And what it is, is a series of questions, 10 questions, that can be done individually. A person can just do them for themselves. We'll link it in the show notes. So if people want to look at that, they can. Okay, great. It does two things. It gives an indication or a number to what the extent of a a person's childhood trauma may be. And the other thing is it really validates the person who had that experience. So if I have a person come to see me and I say, you know, and I'm doing an intake and I'm trying to understand you know, do, do you have some trauma in your history? A lot of times people will say, women in particular will say, oh, well, no, I, you know, I grew up in a nice home and people loved me. And, you know, that's not trauma. And then when we dig even just right under, <laughs> under the, the skin there, we find there may be tremendous amount of trauma. If I were to give someone like that the ACEs test, what they might say is, oh, wow, you know, I always knew I felt badly about myself, or I always had a fearful experience around men or around a particular looking kind of person or, you know, anything that might trigger a traumatic, you know, a PTSD response. And, you know, now they have an answer to that. They have an actual score that tells them and it and it and it's encouraging. Yeah, it it actually can be. It can be like validating, like you're saying, mm-hmm. like oh, there there really is something. I, I don't need to dismiss this. And in my research, it's it's quite tremendous. Actually, seventy five percent of the American population has at least one out of ten on the ACE score, and a full one in eight have four or more on the ACE score. So this is not an isolated one off issue. Actually the vast majority 
of Americans Mm -hmm. experience some kind of adverse childhood event. Even those of us who were raised in quote unquote nice homes experience sometimes really profound trauma that is unrecognized because Mm -hmm. of the the imagery and the overview that says, no, no, you're fine. Oftentimes, many abusers are are invalidating to trauma. Sure. And so it can be really helpful. And then there's the second kind of response to the ACEs study that I've seen out there. And and this is ACEs too high, and they've created this resiliency study. I'm sure you've seen this as well. Give us a little idea of what this is about. What is this score? Because we'll link it in the show notes as well. Tell me, tell me what you're what you're referring to a little bit more. It's the it's the resiliency test. It's like a follow up to the ACEs. Score. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So what this measures is what are the skills that you basically picked up from from having the experience the, these adverse experiences, and these are the things that that kind of make us human and shape our personalities and how we move forward in our, in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's some amazing research happening now all over the country. Finally, we're having this, this, this acceptance and this awareness of, of adverse childhood events and how they happen. And then, you know, this resiliency look is, is looking at how resilient your community is even that mm-hmm. you may not have, you may have actually gotten some neglect or some abuse in the home environment, but actually there were all these other community resources that were available to you. And I think that puts it even in more context in evaluating, you know, what trauma looks like. So June is PTSD awareness month. And that's part of the inspiration that made mm-hmm. us want to, to kind of have this conversation. And I just don't want to assume that our audience has a lot of the lingo that's present in this conversation. So I'd love to kind of back it up a little bit and give some definitions that that might be helpful. So, you know, jump in whenever, but there's two two kind of clear definitions that I want, or actually probably three. So would you give us your definition for just the word trauma? What, what does that mean when we're talking about it in this context? Well, there's a short answer and a longer answer. I don't know how helpful the short answer is, so I might skip that. What I will say is trauma is a threatening, life-threatening or threatening to another life around a person. It's that kind of experience that is stored in the brain differently from other experiences. It's stored in a part of the brain that is directly connected to our nervous system so that our bodies can physically respond if there is any kind of stimulus that, that reminds the person of the trauma that happened. And we do that. We hold these experiences in, in the amygdala, in that part of the brain, so that we can survive again. If we have a traumatic experience that we survive, our body is designed to help us survive that if we ever meet up with that again. Yeah. It's a, it's a yeah. beautiful system. It's, yeah. It's, it's a defensive. It's a, it's a survival mechanism. I love that. that. That helps us to be in a better relationship with, with, with that in our bodies. I love that. And the one thing that's really something that I became aware of, like I think most of us can conceptualize this idea of what 
you know, I've, I've come to refer to, and many people are using this terminology around big T trauma. With a capital T trauma could be a massive car accident, you know, an experience in war, a breaking and entering, a sexual assault. These, these big T traumas can be very obviously identified and can be very clear, very, very defined. But what we're starting to understand, and this is the part I'd love to tease apart more with you, is this, mm-hmm. what, what people are referring to as little T traumas, that actually multiple, not so clearly identifiable threats to the self can mm-hmm. accumulate and become what they're calling these little T traumas. And little T traumas add up too. And so this is where I experienced what you were describing earlier, this invalidation of experience, because I was not in a massive car wreck. I was not in Afghanistan. And yet I also had this major experience of trauma that was not really, it wasn't hard, it was very hard to name. And so this collection of little T traumas, lots of repeated invalidations, assaults, threats to life and limb and self add up. And the added up experience of that is oftentimes a condition that people live with for their life. And it's called complex post-traumatic stress response is how I like to call it instead of Mm -hmm. disorder. And so I'd love to go into these. I'm becoming more and more clearly aware of the difference between PTSD and CPTSD. Mm -hmm. And there's a few educators out there that are even calling, instead of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, they're calling it childhood post-traumatic stress response. And I wonder, could you tease apart some of these definitions for our listeners? And before we kind of start to unravel them, what what does this mean? Okay. So when we talk about, you know, big T versus little T, this is a subjective term. Okay. So one might consider a massive car accident as a big T trauma. Everybody can look around and see it and say, that's, that's a trauma. That's a big T trauma. The person who experiences might say, you know, I got through it. I don't have any residual fear or pain around it. I don't consider that a trauma at all. Okay. So it can go either way. The qualify, you know, qualifying of of what makes it a big T or a little T. Or at all, or a trauma at all. Or a trauma at all, right? Yeah. So when we think, when I think about little t traumas, I think of more relational. I think of more, you know, when when we're writing, when we're narrating our stories, our individual stories, little t traumas shape the way in which we perceive the, the experiences that we've had in our childhood that make our book. They're hard to qualify because a person might consider for themselves a, a small T trauma, something like, uh, you know, I always felt like my dad loved my brother more. Okay. Now, if we look at fundamentally what that means to a child, if we look back to ourselves as from where we come from, where we developed from cave people, if, if the person who had all the power liked us less, invested in us less, that could be a life-threatening situation for us, okay? So we still carry with us, fundamentally, the brains that developed back when we were cave people. So now here we are 
in 2020, and let's say we grew up in the 1980s or 1990s, and we have this belief that this perception that, you know what, I really think my dad loved my brother more than I did. Okay, so our society, even our own community, our family would say, you're crazy, right? That's crazy. Wait, dad loved you. He bought you a car when you turned 16, right? However, that little T trauma shapes self-esteem, self-worth, it shapes how one is in relationship with other people, how one performs in school. If I'm not that important, I might not be that smart. I might not have much effect on the planet or, or, or on the community around me. And so little t traumas tend to be far more insidious and pervasive. You can survive That's a car so accident and mm -hmm. there's a beginning, a middle end. You can identify it, even if it becomes something that is lodged in that more sensitive, touchy part of the brain that connects to your nervous system. Even if it sits in that place, you can at some point with therapy or even just talking about it, move that information out of that part into long-term memory and it's no longer a trauma for you. Yeah. But how do you and tease the other stuff out? They become like a part of the person. It's, they, they, it's not even so much an event. It more mm -hmm. shapes the personality. And this brings us to what, what I was really hoping that we could do, which is try to define why childhood or complex post-traumatic stress response mm -hmm. is so insidious in our culture is so unrecognized. And then of course, the point of our podcast is always to brainstorm solutions. Yes. So I know you've done a huge amount of work and research and, and resource gathering for this uh, situation. And so what you mentioned is, I think, such an important part for people that are unfamiliar with this terminology. And why trauma is such a big deal is that is the way that it functions in our brain is that ideally you would have an experience, you would be like, whoa, that was intense. And then your body would store it as memory and it would not be constantly up in your consciousness and keeping you up at night and giving you nightmares and making you all stressed and worried. It would settle. The emotional adrenalinized response would settle and then it would clear and you could go on about your life. And the thing that's so pervasive about this trauma response is PTSD or CPTSD is that those thoughts, visions, sounds, smells, and emotions don't actually clear. They stay up for healing, if you were. And if someone is unaware of this, it actually can start to massively impact and even disrupt their lives significantly. Sure. So this is why people come to see you or any therapist is they say, mm -hmm. I have anxiety, I have depression, I have anger management issues, I have, you know, and all mm -hmm. of those are manifestations of this trauma response. And so let me ask you this. I think for our listeners, it can be really helpful to, to answer the question, how do you know if you have PTSD or CPTSD or how, if you have a bunch of these little T traumas and you have these kind of mm -hmm. felt sense that you're different or you don't feel like normal or whatever the person would define as, how do they know? How do they go on about getting a diagnosis? And then how can that impact their lives? Okay. So I would argue that everybody has them. 
Hmm. Okay. So if you're alive on this planet and you've survived your childhood, I would say you have little T traumas. I think what you're really asking is how do you know when they're, when they're getting in the way? How do you know when they are to the extent that you might want some help to get to the other side of them? So number one, I want to offer that if someone comes into my office and it is determined that they have PTSD or CPTSD, I would say that if you look at the DSM, which is our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, if you look through this very thick book with hundreds and hundreds of diagnoses that a person could have, when I hear or notice that somebody has PTSD or CPSD, PTSD, I say, oh, well, good, we can fix that. There are some things that, that show up in the DSM that the cure for those things is yet to be discovered. When we look at PTSD or more complex or childhood PTSD, we're looking at a, a life experience or a series of life experiences that, that there is a lot of hope in being able to, to clear those, move those experiences into long-term memories. So we're not going to try to make those memories go away those experiences go away, they're part of what shape us. We want to remember them so we can draw from those experiences and, and to heal and to, you know, we gain things from these things that have happened to us. If we look to that person who believed their, their father did not love them as much as their brother, or if we even look to a person who had a parent who, you know, a father who was alcoholic or a mother who was alcoholic and, and really could not cope with parenting, could not be a connected, loving, attuned parent. Okay. That certainly has little T traumas in it. It probably has some big T traumas in it as well. But if we look at that person who survived the childhood with the alcoholic parent, there's a tremendous amount of gain you get, even though no one would wish that on a child. There's a tremendous amount of wisdom, compassion, empathy. You know, it, it gives a person the ability to read other people, even though it comes from a terrible place. It doesn't mean that they, that they can't take that as a skill in a positive way moving forward. And yeah. so... It was and that's a, what the transformation of the trauma does, is it, yes. it unlocks the beauty of what skills you developed in adversity. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and I really believe, I, I have a sort of metaphor that I, it's part of my logo for my business, but it's also so much of how I think about these adverse experiences. I liken a person who has trauma to a twisted juniper tree. And if you look at those twisted juniper trees, they're the most, they're my favorite trees. They're the most beautiful trees. There are no two that are alike because they are shaped by the harsh elements around them. They're also shaped by good elements like water and sunshine and wonderful things too. What makes them beautiful are the experiences that they have had. That's how yeah. I think of trauma. 
it's really beautiful. I, it, what you, it's a beautiful imagery. I like what you share. Well, so one of the fascinating things about becoming a mother and parenting, when you are aware in a big, big way of what mm-hmm. you're doing, is that you become aware that you experience trauma, big or little team, that has varying influence on you today, and that you will likely be creating environments that are causing little T or big T traumas for your children. Mm-hmm. And, and so from this place, how can we help moms, parenting people who have little people that they love and want to protect, mm-hmm. but know that they have their own unresolved trauma? How, how can we guide them or advise them in, when they're aware mm-hmm. that their actions, their choices, just the reality of, of surviving childhood, like you say, has the potential mm-hmm. for trauma? What do you say to them? I say first, know yourself. Know who you are. Forgive yourself. Understand that you're going to make big mistakes. We all do. We make big mistakes with regularity because we're human. That doesn't mean we can't be aware. We can't apologize in the moment. That we can't learn from those adverse experiences and we can't catch them in the moment, apologize and make a repair. John and Julie Gottman are all about relationships and they also created a a whole wing of, of what they do called the Tolaris Institute, which is about parenting. And they talk a lot about making those repairs because making repairs, if you look at where you make a repair, it actually makes the bond stronger. When you say something, obviously not horribly terrible to a child, but when you misunderstand a child or you reprimand a child who maybe you misunderstood something, when you come back and you say, boy, I'm really sorry. You did not deserve that. You did not deserve that tone from me. What you really needed was for me to listen to you, for me to hear you. And I'm here to listen to you now. I'm so sorry I hurt you. Imagine the kind of trust, trust in the parent that child then has, and then the ability to make mistakes and make their own repairs moving forward. Hmm. So beautiful. Has such far-reaching effects. Yeah. 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 I don't know when perfection entered into human consciousness, but gosh, wouldn't it be great to eliminate that one? (laughs) But I think it comes from a good place. I think that we, you know, it is very, very, I've worked with hundreds of people in my career, hundreds and hundreds of preschoolers and their parents and hundreds of people who as adults came to me and we worked with their wounded children on the inside. And It is extremely rare to find a parent who intentionally wants to harm their child and has no love for them. That's very, very rare. That doesn't mean that children don't get harmed. And it doesn't mean that that parents don't make mistakes. And I am not saying that the mistakes that parents make should all be excused. I'm saying there usually is an explanation. Yeah. And of course we make 
we need less repairs because there's less trauma when we heal our own inner child who was ignored or abused or whatever the case may be. So um, that brings us to this, this hope to have some solutions. So many people, as consciousness is rising all over the globe, are becoming yeah. more and more aware of, of the effects of their actions, the consequences of scenarios and situations. And, and there are many adults through just a process of, of which witnessing their own children grow up, thinking, gosh, this is really different than what I experienced, or gosh, I went through a lot. And they're starting to ask this question, like, I think some of my responses and some of my, my reality is, is in trauma. So we talked a little bit about if you notice that you need help getting through the day or getting through the week, potentially it's time to ask for help. But how about in a more subtle way? Parents who don't have the resources or, or don't yet have the ability to, to seek outside help, what can they do on their own, in, in their own space? What kind of resources do you recommend? So this is going to take a little backtracking. Good. Okay. I like that. What, what Dr. Bruce Perry would say? He would say, more effective and more impactful than any therapy, any drug, any medication, any anything on this planet is human relationship. It's healing. And if we look at children who have had, you can look at two children who have had, if it were possible, the exact same adverse experiences in their childhood. If a child has relational, attuned relational support from caregivers, the effects of those adverse experiences will be much less than a child who does not have attuned, connected, loving, respectful relationships in their lives. That goes to say that, you know, as people then grow up, you know, what happened in our, you know, the Western world and increasingly in less economically thriving Resourced. community, yeah. yeah, is that we took, you know, somewhere in the 1940s, 50s, we took women in particular and we put them in these tiny boxes. These, you know, the tiny boxes on the hillside made of ticky tacky. And we separated women from one another. And then the men went out to work. We are designed to be in clans of 20 to 40 people. And if we are, if we are separated into isolation, even if we are with children all day, we are still in isolation. And that's where the problem begins. Because women are not only marginalized and kept in these little boxes and, were, and we were told, don't worry about an education. Don't worry about feeling achievement and mastery in your life personally just be a good mother and a good wife, okay? So some of, those, some of those beliefs about being a good woman or a successful woman, you know, some of that is encapsulated in being in those little houses, right? 
except then we need to make money. So we also have to be breadwinners. And the divorce rate is so high that many of us are living independently with children, making a living. And we are also supposed to be creating this, this perfect home with, with these perfect meals and these perfect, this, these perfect clothes on our children. And, and homemade Play-Doh. Exactly. <laughs> and, and looking good. And right. looking beautiful. Having yeah, to don't be forget. physically beautiful and having this body image, body type that goes with it too. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking of my friend Annie with the Play-Doh, but anyway, find it interesting how you mentioned that we're separated and we're separated also not only from other women, but from our partner, because then you mentioned the Gottmans earlier who have such great work on marriage and there's so much I guess you can, if you learn how to reconnect and the healing process that you brought up that occurs between the parent and child can also happen within the partnership and then is modeling healthy behavior for the child. But then this, what happened around the forties and fifties put us in a position to separate us not only from women, but then I think separate us from our partner, which then leads to us being alone. Yeah. It, it's like, you can't win for losing, you know? And then do men function better somehow? Do they have a clan? Is their clan at work? Is it, is it in the office? As I think of uh, Mad Men, I don't know if you've ever watched that yes. series on Netflix. It just makes me think of that. Exactly. So right. it's, yeah, it's super, super interesting. Yeah. We, humans are designed to be in relationship with one another. We are, we are designed to be social. There's Absolutely. so much dedicated in our brain to reading one another, communicating with one another, empathizing with one another. We are, we are not meant to be in isolation, which is why this quarantine has screwed so many people up. Yeah, Tisha wanted actually to chat about something that is coming up right now in the worlds where we circulate in, which is undoubtedly going to cause not only tremendous trauma in the family, but in, in, the, in the rupture of the original core mother-child bond. Keisha gets messages all the time asking for advocacy and support in this, and she got one just today that she's going to read. Yeah, I did. And I've actually, since the start of this COVID-19 thing, I have gotten many messages like this, but they're still coming in. This one was, do women who are going in for a C-section have any rights when it comes to denying the COVID test? I have a friend due in early August, and she keeps being told by her obstetrician that if she is tested and it's positive, she'll be isolated away from her baby, who will be put in the NICU for two weeks without any visitors allowed. Oh, this, this is, is the recommendation from the CDC and this, this is, is happening, happening all over the country. This is oh. happening. It's continuing to happen. I don't know what to tell anybody. <sighs> I, I don't. <laughs> okay. So there's some major trauma happening. I, I'm, I'm traumatized even thinking about it. Okay. Yeah. So 
So what we know about attachment is that it happens thinking about the experience of the child in utero, okay? And when the child is born, they don't have the understanding or the experience that there is a difference between their body and their mother's body. They don't understand that they have their own separate entity. So you are basically tearing them from a part of themselves and they have no understanding or ability to, to reconcile that. They can't, they can't make sense of that. It is an extreme trauma to the child, yeah. let alone the mother, because yeah. everything in the maternal brain at that point, I mean, if we just want to stick to science, every hormone is about connecting to that child to sustain the life of that child. So I can tell you anecdotally my own experience of having three C-sections and having my second child born with immature lungs, I suppose. It was never really explained to me, but they took her and put her away from me in a, in a, under, I called it the cake dome. Like they had this thing over her head. Oxygen that, dome. Yeah. Yes. And so eight hours after I delivered her by C-section, I had still not seen my child. I had not held her. I had not, I mean, I'd, they ran her off away from me. Yeah. Nobody was around. So I got myself out of bed and moved myself into, into the hall. I started walking out into the hallway, having, you know, obviously an epidural that was still partially working. So dragging myself could have really hurt myself because the drive was so, it was so gigantic. It was so visceral. I can't describe the drive to see my baby. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, immediately a nurse grabbed a, a wheelchair and, and I said, you, I need to be with her. I need to, and I, and I was separated with her for a few days. So the trauma that I experienced <clears throat> myself, let alone whatever the trauma that my daughter was experiencing at the time is incalculable. Yeah. So yeah. to set a protocol to, to immediately separate a child from their mother without any data that suggests that it's even dangerous for a child to be, I, I mean, they're sharing body fluids anyway. Why would it, why would it make sense to separate them? It doesn't. Them? It doesn't. It doesn't make a, any sense. I have a cousin in Italy who delivered by cesarean a few weeks ago, and she was told the same thing. She was actually really excited about trying for a VBAC. And then mm -hmm. COVID hit. They were in quarantine for a very long time because we know the situation there. And mm -hmm. she was told the same thing. So, but yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't, it's not based in any logic. And my question is, is nobody touching, physically touching the baby? Because it sounds like 
They don't want anyone to physically touch the baby. God forbid the baby at has all? COVID-19. That's just the, the sense I get. I'm going to have to, and I'm, I'm dreading it. Have you I seen really the images online from the Philippines and Taiwan and Korea and these various places? They have fashioned these plexiglass head visors for babies in the NICU now so that they're not breathing any. It's like a face mask for a baby that they're putting oh. on in the NICUs. All the babies are separate. And are and they then touching they move, them with gloves? Mm-hmm. The only gloves and they move them to bottle feed them. And then they put the face mask back down again and they live in the little isolate in the nursery. We're in a middle of a really giant social experiment right now. And I, I'm, I'm really concerned about the I feel future like of humanity. We've done th- we, I feel like we've done this experiment before mm-hmm. with orphanages. Yes. <laughs> you know, you can watch the black and white footage of it and we know what happens when, when children, human beings are, you know, experience deprived of touch love and no yes. touch. Yes. It's yes. We have the numbers know. on that. We actually have the research on that. And who could be better to care for an infant that might get sick than its mother? I mean, th- or well, certainly than its what? father or that it's someone else. I mean, it's, it's all theory at this point. And I, it, the, the arrogance of the medical system prioritizing this physical health over a lifetime of emotional health is just amazing to me. It shows you how deeply disconnected we are in, as a society that policymakers could set this. And what is the, when I think about the, you know, what, what do they call like that, that colostrum, that, that first. Oh, Claustrum. It's liquid There's, gold. It's, like, it's it actually seals the gut. To be? Yeah, and exactly. mom would have antibodies though to COVID nineteen exactly. that she exactly. would then pass to baby yes. in the yes. breast it's, milk. Colostrum it's moronic. In the milk. It's moronic. Even the World Health Organization is recommending that babies stay with their mothers and be breastfed regardless of mother's COVID status. Yeah. So the fact that the CDC and some other countries are going against that policy, and it's maybe it's not even CDC, maybe it's ACOG that has issued this, but but that that a policy making physician would ignore all of these benefits in favor of the potential risk is just it's mind blowing to me. And of course, we could all be shocked and horrified longer, but let's get move on to solutions because this is what I really want to talk about. Okay. So, so an example of what's happening right now has happened in the past. I was separated from my mother for two plus weeks. Mm-hmm. Many times it does happen because of prematurity or because of infection or because of something else. Hopefully they're not hundred percent separated. Hopefully there is physical mm-hmm. touch. But these kinds of core attachment wounds happen mm-hmm. all the time, all over the right. globe. And then there's all the adverse childhood experiences that we talked about in ACEs. Mm-hmm. And then there's like life, right? Like right. the car accidents and the things and, you know, mm-hmm. war and all the things that people live through. Yes. And if they live through it, they experience oftentimes this psychological trauma. How do we so- support, encourage, educate, love people through trauma that's alive and up in their amygdala every day to a place where trauma is put to bed and lives in the memories and is not affecting them every day. What are some solutions? There's some that they can do on their own. And then there's resources and people and organizations that we could mention as well. So we're going to pick your brain for all these things. (laughs) Okay. I want to, I want to start with human relationship. Number one, number one, human relationship. So 
if if a person is is experiencing you know anxiety depression flashback addiction you know any of those things that show up with PTSD what the first thing to to do is find safety that's the number one thing so we as supporters of of people even of family of friends or of clients creating safe places that's number one no work can be done if we're still under threat because we need the nervous system firing if we're under threat we need to survive so we need to number one create safety the second piece is there are you know when we think about the disturbing experiences that come with PTSD we think about the nervous system acting up you know that might show up in the gut that might show up in breath it might show up in emotion it might show up in all kinds of physiological and emotional ways, thoughts as well. You know, it's so interesting. I recently read a theory that almost all IBS is actually a PTSD response. Isn't that mind-blowing? I wouldn't and, doubt it. you know, obviously asthma and, and, you know, panic attacks and hyperventilation, all of that is really, but the idea that the, the gut response, and actually they link, this is totally an aside, but <laughs> they link mm -hmm. it to that fawn response. That yes, you, you're bargaining, you're trading, you're giving yes. something else. Isn't yes, that so anyway, so totally if you want to do research on that, look into Stephen Porges, and he talks about the polyvagal response. Really interesting, fascinating, brilliant stuff. And he discovered it by studying infants originally. So really interesting stuff. What we're talking about: ways to heal, ways to repair, ways to to help. Okay. So if we can find safety and we have positive, connected relationships, and I'm not talking about, you know, romantic relationships, although that's part of the human experience as well, but having, having a posse, having your people is the first thing I ask somebody when they walk in my door is, you know, the most important thing I'm going to ask you today is who are your people? And if you don't have people, we're going to have to create people for you. We're going to have to find that for you. When we regulate infants when they're first born, we regulate them from the outside in because they can't regulate themselves, okay? Do not believe the people that say we have to get them on a schedule and help them self-soothe. That's, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to censor myself. That is Arbage. fucked up. <laughs> okay. That was a better okay. way to say it. <laughs> okay. That's wrong. It's just wrong. It's so, it's so counterintuitive. So when a baby is born, we regulate them from the outside in, which means we rock them, right? We pat them. We rock them. We do this at the same rate as the maternal heart rate. We do them at about 80 beats per minute. It's biology right? So if it works for a baby to regulate them from the outside in by rocking them, then even the act of sitting in a rocking chair and rocking ourselves as adults, soothing ourselves as adults can help bring us back to regulation. 
taking a bath is not unlike being in the womb. Regulation has to be physical as well. I think this is why my next career move is a professional cuddler. Have you seen yes. that? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> I'm serious though. Keisha, I love you so much. Yes. Lawyer to professional cuddler. I see it. It's a nice, it's a really strategic move. I see it. Yeah. So it, and, and, and sucking is, too. Something I've read is yes. like sucking because that's uh, an instinct, an inborn instinct and mechanism in, in the infant that even just sucking on a lollipop or something can help mm -hmm. to do that stimulation, subconscious self-soothing. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, if we look at that. And that's, of course, what smoking is all about, right? That's, that's yeah. where the smoking addiction comes from is it's this oral fixation, which is really an unmet need, which is really self-soothing, which is so interesting. Yes. Music is incredibly healing. Singing is incredibly healing. Dancing with others, I know it's, you know, not good now to be dancing with others, but dancing with <laughs> others is really good. Yeah, Yoga is fabulous. Yoga is really good for, for regulating, you know, look up Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He'll talk about yoga. He does a lot of work with trauma and he does some work at Krupalu in Massachusetts and it's all about the yoga. Um, yeah, I was going to recommend, he's such an incredible author around the body keeps the score and there are mm -hmm. some really incredible videos of him on YouTube too. We'll link to a few of those in our show notes. Yep. I think it yep. goes back to what you were saying. It's about connection, having your clan squad, as I would call it, mm -hmm. <laughs> and just your people. And I think one of, if there's any little tease that I can remember in my life, it's the same one that reoccurred. And it was, and I don't remember what I said to my mother over and over again to prompt it. It may have been, can I go do this with a friend? Can I have a sleepover? Because I didn't get to sleep over at a friend's house for a very long time. But I remember her telling me, you don't need friends. You don't need friends. That is the most painful memory for me as an adult that I still think about that still bothers me. And, and it's, it's wrong. <laughs> it's totally wrong. It makes yeah. no sense. And it's the one thing I struggled with even into adulthood, this idea right. of wanting friends and having, making really close connections with people. It was very hard for me to do, although I wanted that. But only recently do I feel like I'm getting better at it. Because you were told by the person who you were watching to see, how am I supposed to live my life? How do I do this right? How do I, you know, we learn from our primary caregiver, which is typically our mother. And mm -hmm. if our mother, who is, who is the model for relationships for us, says, you don't need that. You don't need people then we are, we are, then you were taught, I have to be ultimately self-reliant. And that sounds awfully lonely and really sad. I want to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm I on the list to too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, you've was, got such yeah, a great sorry. point there. That's it's, we're watching for clues. And so just to tie it back to the moms who are listening now, 
who might have small people around them. Mm-hmm. Your little people are watching you for the cues of how to be in the world. And so one of the biggest lessons that I feel like I have in- interpreted in the last bunch of years has been to stop the denying, the self-denying of pleasure, of time off, of relaxation, of enjoyment, of vacation, or of that's a learned behavior. And if you become aware that you are self-denying, you're definitely denying your children. So Mm -hmm. that's going to definitely have this impact. And so it's, it's really just a forgiving and a, and a giving doing those things that you were told, like, you know, Keisha making friends and for me not working. 80, mm-hmm. 90, 180 hours a week. And, and that, that is, that is the freedom. That's the, that's the healing. And, right. And so, and I to think notice, for, to notice yeah. also that, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is like really, Good. I think an important piece to notice that we continue what we learn. So we will replicate the relationship that we saw in our childhood or, or we will use the model that our mothers taught us to reproduce that, that relationship with our partner moving forward. And I, you know, it was really funny. My ex-husband, notice ex, would, would say these wor- this exact phrase to me. He would say, you don't need that. And it didn't matter what it was. It would be like, you know, I want to paint, paint this room yellow. My mom you said that all the time. Sorry. You don't need that. Yes. And it's what I grew up with. You don't need that. That's not true. Well, maybe it is true, but I don't care. I want a yellow room, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's that, that we like what you're saying is that we internalize that no sayer, that invalidator, and then some part of ourselves starts doing it internally. And if you become aware of that, you can change that story. And I think that's the work of trauma healing actually is, mm-hmm. the, especially with little T traumas, it's like big tree traumas. If you, if you get in a car again and you feel like you're going to get in a car crash, that's a different kind of a healing. Mm-hmm. But for little T traumas, actually the trauma repeats because some part of you on the inside is det- determined to punish, invalidate, mm-hmm. decentralize, or somehow shake your sense of self um, the same way that the parent did. This is what childhood trauma, this is why it lives on even as an adult, is it's still happening inside your brain. And so I think this awareness, like you're saying, and then the ability to self-soothe, to turn that part of you off, to become, to say, actually, that's a story. That's a, that's a concept I was fed or trained about. That's not what Mm -hmm. I actually believe. Like, Mm -hmm. like Keisha, like you do know you need friends and you're, you're totally retraining it. Yeah. I think, I think sometimes, and I'm interested to hear what you think, Erica, because I feel like there's a couple different types of people in the world. There are the people who repeat things. And for another example with my mother, if we wanted to do something, if it was a dance lesson or whatever it was, it was, I didn't get to do that. You're not going to do that. I didn't get to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I am the complete opposite with my son. Mm -hmm. I, my biggest concern in life is probably him having friends, him having a little squad. It's, and then second is me working on that for myself. But Mm -hmm. I have, why are some people repeaters and why do Mm -hmm. some people consciously want to break it, the cycle? So, I don't, yes. So, so if we have a core belief 
it's sort of like um, the ground we're walking on. And if the core belief gets shaken, then we feel like we don't have ground to walk on. Even if it's a shitty core belief, if we believe that, you know, I'm not that smart, okay? If the belief is, I guess I'm not that smart because that's what I was taught through my whole childhood, right? We will find ways in which to continue that narrative because it's a core belief. And unless and until we have something else to stand on, it's hard to let go of that initial belief, even if it's an ugly belief. Whereas some people that that core belief gets shook early on. So they, they then build a different foundation, a different platform. And a lot of this happens unconsciously, right? But in terms of mm-hmm. doing the complete opposite, that's well, and that we, happens. And if we hear a different narrative, right? Yeah, so, right. So maybe, maybe mom says, you don't need friends, right? But maybe a really good teacher who, or a, a great babysitter or a cousin or, you know, someone who's just a little bit older and has some influence, has some clout with the kid, says, oh, my friends, they're the most important things that I have. So to reiterate, um, the solutions that so far we've heard from Erica is that we are going to really focus on having a squad, a group of people that is safe, that has our back, that's supporting us in our journey. We're going to really understand all the self-soothing techniques like rocking and sucking and music and dance and singing and baths, um, baths, right, to soak in that feeling of weightlessness and being womb-like. Hot tubs, that's my thing. I love to go to the hot springs, the natural hot springs and float. What other techniques are going to help people resolve trauma? Talking about it. Changing the narrative. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a therapist, so I'm going to say, you know, (laughs) finding a therapist that's a really good fit for you and working through your trauma. The kind of, the kind of therapy I do is EMDR therapy. There are other trauma therapies out there, but this is one that works. Well, can you tell us about how someone would find an EMDR therapist? Because I'm definitely a fan. It's intense work, but it does really life, like actually change the progress. Whereas talk therapy isn't always that successful. So you tell us, what does it stand for and where can someone find this? It stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. There is a website, emdria, E-M-D-R-I-A dot org. It stands for EMDR International Association dot org. And on that, you can put in your, and you can be anywhere in the world. You can put in your your zip code or your address or however it works in other countries. They will tell you of a, you know, they'll give you a list of EMDR therapists in your area. Okay, cool. We'll put that in the show notes. So they're going to find their squad. They're going to have their own self-soothing home remedy techniques. They're going to maybe find an EMDR trauma specialty therapist. Anything else that you want to recommend our listeners resource up? The other thing I would say is really great Mm self-care. Really good taking care of yourself. 
And you know, what's funny is earlier when we were talking about your squad and your son and saying, you know, I make sure, you know, he knows that he really want him to have um, a squad first. And then I look at my own and I would reverse that. Really hard to do. It's like the oxygen and the airplane, right? Yeah. But, but the truth is you just having a squad is going to teach your son the importance of having a squad. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I definitely know that and try to be the example because growing up, I could actually see that more with my stepdad than my mother. I look back on it now and you see that modeling is so important. Yeah. So important. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, and talking about things, you know, having a narrative, putting words, left brain words to right brain experience, you know, emotion, all of that allows you to put a beginning, a middle and an end. It allows you to write the story. And once you have words for it, it becomes yours and you get to, it takes the power away from it. Yeah, I can't, I can't echo that enough. There's a YouTuber that I follow, Richard Grannon, who has this great section about emotional literacy. This idea that if you can really clearly in the giant emotion world, name the feeling, Mm-hmm. It gives you so much more power and the emotion so much less power. It conceptualizes it, like you're saying, a beginning, middle, and an end. It puts it in its place, if you will. It's not yes. just a giant thing. It, it, it home, gives it a home. And that, the home of that emotional literacy literally can change so much. And as you were saying, like self-care, this, this is something I really want to, want to get clear with you. There's so much false narrative around self-care, especially in the U.S., this idea that self-care is the spa or self-care is, you know, a manicure or something. Self-care is, I believe, this is how I define it, self-care is actually the sacred yes and holy no. It's the ability to discern what is right for you and then the conviction that, that your needs matter so that you will center that decision. You won't just go with the flow. You won't just make decisions that make other people's lives better, that you actually are going to say no regularly. Brene Brown has this great quote. She says, the most generous people I know say no the most. And the reason I love this quote is it, it just, it, it really clarifies this idea that actually saying no is one of the most important self-care mechanisms we can do. Because then when you give, you can really give. And the rest of the time you get rid of the guilt and the shame and the whatever else comes with the overgiving, which is such a problem in our culture. So yeah, so many resources there. Erica, this has been such a refreshing and insightful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks Thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Okay. Bye Erica. Thank you. Bye.